one such plea that he makes, as it's so poetically translated, is do for one who may do for you that you may cause him thus to do. Now, superficially, seems very much like the golden rule. I maintain, however, this is not truly the golden rule because of the ethic of reciprocity. Let me explain. The golden rule is pretty much a call to altruistically decent behavior. When you look at the biblical injunction to love your neighbor as yourself, there's no compensation. Just love your neighbor. You know how it feels when people treat you nicely, so do that to others. Just like you overlook your own foibles and shortcomings and maintain a love of self, do that for another. Even as expounded by Hillel the Elder, what is hateful to you, don't do to another, it's telling you that you should treat others the way you want to be treated, but that's not the reason you do it. You don't do it because they're going to treat you that way. It's just the way in which you know whether or not something you do is appropriate. Is this something I should do or something I shouldn't do? The Egyptian version has a major flaw, a seeming expectation of reciprocity. It says, who may do for you? What if he can't do for you? What if it's like, you know, uh, the idea of charity? A poor person can't give me charity. If I'm rich, the poor person's not going to do anything for me. I have to give him charity. So it's not that he may do for me. Or what about the case of a mace mitzvah, a dead body that someone has to take care of and there's no one else to do it? Well, he can't do that for you. He's dead. And what really kills it is the last phrase, that you may cause him to do. In the first one, it's just that he may do it for you. Hopefully, you know, you'll get something out of it. But here, it ruins the whole game. If your sole motivation is to cause the other guy to do it, that's not very nice. I don't really want to be nice to you. I'm just doing it so that when I want something, you'll repay the favor. And if you don't, well, you can forget about me being nice to you ever again. The golden rule differs from the maxim or ethic of reciprocity, which is expressed by the Latin phrase, do des, I give so that you give, in return. It's a, rather a unilateral moral commitment to the well-being of another without the expectation of anything in return. So therefore, I maintain that when it comes to the golden rule, Jews did it first. And now, the anti-missionary part of the show. Just so you should know, when having these debates, or whatever, with Christians, you should remember something very important. Only biblical references are valid for Christian discussions. It's a very good rule of thumb. If they don't believe in the validity of the Talmud or Jewish law or philosophy, there's no point in bringing them up, number one. And number two, which they've started doing, if they use them as some kind of proof to you that their point is valid, then you just tell them, look, you don't believe in it, number one. And number two, you know, I thought you are trying to show me that according to Judaism, you know, this is okay, your beliefs are okay. Now, those who believe, or who said what they're saying in the Talmud, well, they didn't believe in Christianity, so therefore, your whole argument doesn't work. So, it's a bad idea all the way around. Don't fall into that trap. 
Okay. So, since I want to start off strong, interesting, let's go right for the sacred cow of missionary texts, Isaiah 53. There's a lot to unpack in Isaiah 53, so we're going to have to break this up into chunks over the next few episodes. I'll begin by reading the passage to you so you know what we're talking about, and then we'll look at some of their claims and give you the Jewish response. There's only 12 verses or so, so bear with me. Who would have believed our report, and to whom was the arm of the Lord revealed? And he came up like a sapling before it, and like a root from dry ground. He had neither form nor comeliness, and we saw him that he had no appearance. Now shall we desire him? Despised and rejected by men, a man of pains and accustomed to illness. And as one who hides his face from us, despised and we held him of no account. Indeed, he bore our illnesses, and our pains he carried them, yet we accounted him as plagued, smitten by God, and oppressed. But he was pained because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. The chastisement of our welfare was upon him, and with his wound we were healed. We all went astray like sheep. We have turned each one on his way, and the Lord accepts his prayers for the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he would not open his mouth. Like a lamb to the slaughter he would be brought, and like a ewe that is mute before her shearers, and he would not open his mouth. From imprisonment and from judgment he is taken, and his generation who shall tell? For he was cut off from the land of the living because of the transgression of my people. A plague befell them. And he gave his grave to the wicked and to the wealthy with his kinds of death, because he committed no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And the Lord wished to crush him. He made him ill. If his soul makes restitution, makes itself restitution, he shall see children. He shall prolong his days, and God's purpose shall prosper in his hand. From the toil of his soul, he would see, he would be satisfied. With this knowledge, my servant would vindicate the just for many, and their iniquities he would bear. Therefore, I will allot him a portion in public, and with the strong he shall share plunder, because he poured out his soul to death. And with transgressors he was counted, and he bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. Now, on the surface, without any knowledge of context or the Hebrew language, it can seem a very powerful proof text for Christian claims. In fact, I've read and heard testimonials of Christian converts who say that it was this passage, sometimes on its own, that made them decide to convert. Now, like I said, Isaiah 53, there's a lot to it here, so we're not going to cover the whole thing in one segment. Today, I just want to discuss context. Common Christian tactic, as seen in the New Testament itself, is to take a verse or passage out of context and or mistranslate some things and then claim that it's a solid prophecy of Jesus. So if you hear the phrase, for example, I want to exterminate them all, you know, it makes a big difference whether that's Adolf Hitler, Yemachimon, speaking about Jews in Germany or me in my basement speaking about mice. So you see, context matters. And so too in Isaiah 53. Ask yourself two simple questions. Who is speaking? And about whom is that person speaking? Right? Is it Hitler and the Jews, or is it me and the mice? You know, who's talking and about whom are they speaking? 
So to answer those questions, you actually have to go a couple verses back in this monologue. Just a couple verses back to chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, the last three verses there. And those read like this very shortly. Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up, and he shall be very high. As many wondered about you, how marred is his appearance from that of a man, and his features from that of people. So shall he cast down many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For what they had, for what had not been told them they saw, and at what they had not heard they gazed. So who's speaking here? The kings of nations are speaking here in their numbed astonishment. They are witnessing the stark contrast to everything they had ever heard or considered. Naturally, their first question is, who would ever believe such a thing? Look at chapter 53, verse 1, the very next sentence. Who would believe our report? This isn't God or Isaiah's narrative. It's the kings of the Gentile nations. They are utterly astounded that God's servant, whom their nations have despised and molested, is finally vindicated and enjoy the promised salvation of God. The shock that the Gentile nations will experience and express in the Messianic era is a common theme in the Hebrew Bible. You see this in Zechariah 8.23, Micah 7.16, Isaiah 41.11, Jeremiah 16.9, just to name a few. You can go look them up. I'm not going to read them. It takes too long. Now, for the second question, of whom are they speaking? Who is this mysterious servant? We know what the Christian argument is, but does that hold water? Again, context matters. Remember, we're in Isaiah 53 here, and 52. This servant is just mentioned as if we know who it is. Do we? Well, if you look in Isaiah 41, 43, 44, 45, 48, 49, the servant is clearly and consistently identified as Israel the Jewish people, God's chosen nation. By the time we get to chapters 52 and 53, it's a no-brainer. This passage doesn't indeed seem to be messianic, but it's not referring to the Messiah. However, missionaries will contend, well, since the references to the servant are in the singular in Isaiah 53, well, that shows that the chapter is speaking about an individual, not an entire nation. This argument, however, completely ignores the entire context of the surrounding motif of Isaiah 53. For example, in Isaiah 43.10, it clearly identifies the servant, singular form, as God's witnesses, plural form, within the same sentence. Furthermore, all Christians concede that the chapters that surround Isaiah 53, namely 52 and 54, consistently speak of the Jewish people as a single individual. Considering that the chapter 53 narrative really begins in verse 13 of chapter 52, this argument is completely untenable. Moreover, as we'll discuss in later episodes, Isaiah alternates within chapter 53 itself between singular and plural when discussing this servant. And in the next chapter, 54, he continues to speak of the Jewish people as a single individual. They are portrayed as a despised and afflicted barren woman. Following the theme of the previous two chapters, God assures his tormented people 
of their final vindication and redemption. There's so much more to say on this, and I look forward to the coming weeks as we analyze this passage from a Jewish perspective. Now I'd like to end off with a short insight into this week's Torah portion, Noach, or Noah. As the flood waters were raining down, God tells Noah, Bo el ha-teva, go into the ark. Now in Hebrew, teva, ark, can also mean word. And the Medrash explains that waters refer to the difficulties of making a living and supporting yourself and your family. In order that the constant pressures and strains of life don't overtake you, bo el ha-teva, go into the word, the words of Torah and of prayer. This will keep you afloat, so that instead of the waters of difficulty overcoming you, you will remain on top and in control. Well, that's it for our first episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. There's definitely more to what I mentioned today, so feel free to continue the conversation with me at Oswego Rabbi on Twitter or at rabbi at jewishoswego.org or on the Facebook page, Jews Did It First. If there's a particular issue you'd like explained in a future episode, just let me know. I'll try to get to it sooner, not the very next episode. Till then, enjoy the rest of your week. Shabbat Shalom.